you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and we're looking forward to having and sharing a great Christmas time together just as we've started our season of Advent. And uh, today is also a special service, not just because we've started uh, the series of Advent, but because I'm going to talk about the ordinances of the church today, and I've split my message into two parts. If you were here last week, I kind of explained how we were going to kind of do that. And uh, so today, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the ordinances of the church. And so I want to talk about baptism now, and then we're going to sing a few songs, and then uh, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper after that. Uh, this series that I'm doing on the church, we've looked at all the, all the major, I guess all the major things that you would expect to hear whenever we talk about the church. We've talked about worship, uh, we have talked about mission, and uh, what, the, what a true church looks like, what we should expect out of church, all those, all those different things. Well, today I want to talk about the ordinances of the church. I don't know that we talk enough about the ordinances except for whenever we actually do them. Uh, usually whenever we do the Lord's Supper, I might talk for three or four minutes, and then a baptism, kind of the same. I thought it would be appropriate in this, in this series, well, it would really, really would have been good uh, if, if I would have had... I would have had enough Sundays uh, to do a sermon on the Lord's Supper and a sermon on baptism, uh, but I thought it would be good for us to just spend a little bit of an extended time talking about the ordinances of the church, uh, and the two for us are uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, first off, I want to explain to you the difference between a sacrament and between an ordinance. Uh, how many of you grew up being something other than Baptist before you came to... How many of you would grow up and say, I, I haven't always been Baptist all my life? Okay. Surprisingly enough, there were a lot more in the second service than in this first service. Different traditions believe different things about baptism and about the Lord's Supper. If you grew up Catholic, there's just something different that's believed. If you were Lutheran or even Presbyterian or in another Christian tradition, we all explain the Lord's Supper and, and baptism and talk about them and present them a little bit different. Some traditions, there's a lot of difference. Uh, and of, between other traditions, there's not a lot of difference. However, the universal thing that we see with all all Christians, all Christians, regardless of, uh, uh, regardless of their tradition, they embrace baptism and the Lord's Supper as two things that are very, very important to our faith, very important ceremonies in our faith. What we don't believe is we don't believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper convey saving grace to you. That would be looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper as a sacrament, that somehow by being baptized, you get saved. And we call that baptismal regeneration, where you get baptized, and because you got baptized, you got saved. That is a sacrament. We don't, we don't believe that. Or believing that the Lord's Supper come, somehow conveys or dispenses to you saving grace as you participate in the elements. That would be looking at baptism and the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. Uh, we believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are an ordinance. What we mean by that is we believe that they were ordained by Christ, that Christ set them in motion for us us that Christ basically ordained, or it is his will for us to participate in these things. And what they do is, is they picture the gospel. And I hope that you'll be able to see that today as we work through both of these. First, uh, just for about 10 minutes, I want to talk to you about baptism. Baptism. 
Uh, if I were to give you just a simple definition of baptism, it would be that it is the immersion of a new believer in water as a symbol of their faith and as a witness to others. That's about as simple of a definition that I could write for you. The immersion or the total submersion of a new believer, someone who is brand new to the faith, in water. And it's a symbol, not a sacrament, but a symbol of their faith. It signifies something that is very, very important that has happened to them, and it's done uh, as a witness to other, others or as a proclamation that they have the same faith uh, that is embraced in the New Testament. Uh, so this past week, just in my quiet time, not necessarily in preparation for this service, but this past week in my quiet time, I really meditated on John the Baptist and some verses in Luke that talked about John the Baptist. And it struck me as I was reading those verses that the very first person that, got na that was named as being baptized in Scripture was Jesus. Jesus was the first person. Now, we know that John the Baptist baptized other people, but the first person that is named in Scripture as being baptized was Jesus himself. And uh, so when we look at what John the Baptist was doing and Jesus being baptized, we see this important tradition that goes all the way back to Jesus at the root of the Christian faith uh, as to why we celebrate it. Uh, we see in the New Testament that uh, baptism always accompanied the preaching and the believing and the embracing of the gospel. And for the past 2,000 years, every believer who got saved has been baptized. And so, um, the question that some people ask, why do we baptize? Why do we baptize people? Uh, I, th I think that the first reason that I would give to you as to why we should be baptized is, well, because Jesus was baptized. Um, but the first one that I have for the screen for you is because Jesus told us to. Jesus, Jesus told us to baptize people. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, this is our Great Commission verse. Uh, this is the verse that was given to, to the early, uh, early apostles, to the first disciples, and has been passed down to us as our marching orders, the re our, our reason for doing missions. And the Bible says that the very first thing that we should do after we make a disciple, Jesus said, go make disciples and baptize them. This is what Jesus told us to do. And secondly, or I guess you would say number three, the reason that we baptize is because every believer in the New Testament was baptized. All of them, everyone who heard the gospel and believed the gospel was baptized. We see this just by glancing through some verses of Scripture in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preached to the Jews after Pentecost, we see that 3,000 people got saved. And then Deacon Philip, when he preached in Samaria, the Bible says that they believed and they were baptized, both men and women. He preached again to an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, and the, the Ethiopian eunuch said, hey, let's get, uh, what's to, to keep me from getting baptized? And so he baptized him, as recorded in Acts chapter 8. Remember the guy Paul who wrote a bunch of books in the Bible? We have his baptism recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 18. 
Peter in the home of Cornelius. Um, he 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 and whole his whole family was baptized. Lydia in Philippi in Acts chapter sixteen, she was baptized. The Philippian jailer in his family in Acts chapter sixteen was baptized. Uh, the synagogue ruler in Corinth was baptized. Now this is probably interesting because uh, baptism before John the Baptist was pictured uh, was basically if you were a, if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to worship the Jewish God, then the Jews would, uh, would baptize you as part of their proselytization. You would, you would be baptized into the Jewish faith. And so it was probably interesting, this synagogue ruler who probably had baptized non-Jewish people um, in, into the synagogue, and now here he is being baptized into the church of God. Then there's the believers of Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And so in all these instances, something significant, something very spiritual, something important had happened to them. And baptism was that sign, that initiation, that they were now a part of Christ, and they were now a part of the covenant community of God. In fact, it was the initiation into the the body of Christ, the very first act of a new believer. There was no waiting. There was no discipleship process that led up to this. There was just the Holy Spirit saving them, them being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then immediately them being baptized in water to signify. And I think that's very important when we talk about what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes our union with Christ and our union with God's covenant people. That's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes that that you've received the Holy Spirit, that you've been been baptized by the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God lives inside of you, that a work of new life, a work of regeneration has happened in your heart, and then you get baptized as a way to symbolize it. This passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5, is a perfect example of this union that we have with Christ that is symbolized in baptism. Just as Jesus died, so have you. Just as Jesus was raised, resurrected, so have you been resurrected. When you get saved, the old you dies and gets buried with Christ, and then the new you is gloriously resurrected as the Holy Spirit gives you new life. This is what we see in Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For have, if we have been, there's our word, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we see how spirit baptism and water baptism are pictured together in Scripture. Now, now please hear me. I don't mean that you receive the Spirit when you get baptized, that somehow you get saved and you receive the Holy Spirit just because 
because you're baptized in water. No, baptism in water signifies that you have been baptized by the Spirit and that you have been given new life in Christ. That's what the work of the Spirit does inside of you whenever you get saved. The old you dies. There's a death that should happen in your life whenever you get saved. That old you that lied and fornicated and got drunk and did drugs or was angry and hateful and vengeful or maybe was materialistic and selfish and unforgiving, bitter, a gossip, idolatrous, or maybe was a workaholic, was mean-spirited or greedy. That old you, when you got saved, that old person, that old man died and was buried because that's what happened to Christ. That's what happens, happens to you when you get saved. And so just as the body is immersed in water in baptism, so the Holy Spirit cleanses your soul. The Holy Spirit saves you from all of those things. The Holy Spirit washes you on the inside whenever you're baptized with the Holy Spirit and whenever you get saved. And so water baptism does the same thing. It symbolizes the reality of something that has already happened previously to you. And so when you go under the water, it symbolizes that death. When you come out of the water, it symbolizes that purity. And when you come out of the water, you are completely immersed in water. And that's a, that, that's a symbol that you have closed your, clothed yourself with Christ. We're saved by the Holy Spirit. He cleanses us, and this is a symbol of that washing. And when you come out of the water, you walk in newness of life. It is a symbol of a resurrection that has literally happened in you previously as you got saved. So with all that in mind, let me just give you some bullet points about baptism. I don't have time to really explain any of these in depth, but these are just some quick bullet points that we want to keep in mind when we think about baptism. Uh, number one, baptism does not save you. There is no difference in the water that we, that we use to fill up this tank. There's no difference between that water and the water that flows into your homes that you use to take showers with, that you use as drinking water out of your refrigerator, that you use to wash your clothes and all other purposes that you use in your house. There's absolutely no difference between the water that's in our baptistry right now and the water that flows into your home. Baptism does not save. Jesus saves, period. Jesus is the only one that saves. Baptism is just a symbol of that. And by the way, a people that believe that baptism saves, they, they don't believe that baptism is a symbol. They believe, that they believe in something called baptismal regeneration. They believe that when you are put under the water, that that literally washes away your sins. But the last time I read my Bible, it said that the blood of Jesus washes away my sins, not water on the body. Uh, but it's, it just symbolizes that. Number two, only believers are baptized. 
We only baptize believers. It holds no meaning, no symbolism. There's nothing sacred about it for a person that has not been saved. This is why many of you, like myself, uh, have gotten what we call re-baptized. You got baptized at one point in your life, and then you realized at a later point in your life that you weren't really saved. And so you called upon Jesus, and you got saved, and then you said, hey, you know what? I haven't experienced believer's baptism. Uh, we, we, we only baptize believers. This is why we don't baptize infants like some other traditions do. Uh, we don't believe that an infant has the ability to repent of their sin and believe the gospel and be baptized by the Holy Spirit in the same way that adults were all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and so that's why we're also very careful whenever we baptize small children. Children are designed to do what adults tell them that they should do. And they are also very impressionable to follow a crowd of their friends who are doing things. And so we want to monitor and make sure that kids have really come to know Christ. Parents, this is your responsibility. You are responsible uh, to make sure that not just that they repeated a prayer, it's not the prayer that saves, just like it's not the water that saves, only Jesus. Jesus saves, and so we want to make sure that Jesus has done a work in the heart of that child. Uh, not just that they've made a decision, but that God has done something inside of them. And as their parent, you have the obligation to oversee their soul. As church leaders, we come alongside you to help. You have Sunday school teachers and other people in their life that help you oversee that child and nurture them in the faith, and you take all of that into account as you evaluate whether or not a child is a believer or not. And so we always want to balance spiritual deception uh, and spiritual discouragement. We don't, want to de we don't want to deceive a child by throwing them under, a water, under the water and they grow up the rest of their life. They think, well, I got baptized when I was a kid and so I'm saved. We, don't want, to, we want to be careful not to spiritually deceive, but we also want to, don't want to spiritually discourage. When a child has been regenerated and born again and they want to be baptized and they're asking for it, uh, we want to make sure that we discern that properly because we don't want to discourage them. Okay, this next one. Baptism only happens once. You do not have to be baptized in a certain church in order for your baptism to be valid. There are people that would disagree with me on that. But I believe in believer's baptism, period. You get baptized after you believe an immersion and we, we believe that that's baptism. You only have to do that once. Listen, if you have drifted away from the faith, let's say you grew up in church and you got saved and you really know that you're saved, but when you got into college, you drifted away and now you're coming back to the church and you say, well, I just need a new beginning. Will you baptize me? No, that's not what baptism is for. Baptism signifies your salvation, not something that you do with every step in the process of your sanctification whenever you need another shot in the arm, so to speak. It's not the purpose of baptism. It only happens once. You don't need to be rebaptized. If you've been baptized by immersion, you don't need to be rebaptized um, just because you're, you're renewing your faith. Okay, uh, baptism in the New Testament was always by immersion. That's why we as Baptists uh, believe in baptism uh, by immersion. That's, that's kind of a point of emphasis in our 
uh, in our Baptist, you know, thinking, right, is immersion. It's a big deal to us as Baptists. It's always by immersion in the New Testament. Baptism should be as public as possible. Listen, I know that when you, when you, when you say, I want to be baptized, you get nervous about it. There is no one that enters into these walls behind, uh, the, in these bathrooms, leading into these baptismal waters that doesn't get nervous. Everyone gets nervous. But it should be as public as possible. I don't do private baptisms. If you say, hey, will you come to my house and we'll go down behind my house and get into a creek and baptize you, I will say only if we can invite the entire church. Actually, what I would say is I would say, why don't we just do it at the church? We don't want to do private baptisms. Baptism is a proclamation of your faith. It's you coming out wearing your salvation and your discipleship as a badge of honor as you have clothed yourself with Christ and you want everyone to know. Your baptism is your first work as an evangelist. It's the first time that you stand up and say Jesus as Lord, and then you live a life of mission telling everyone. So it should be as, as public as possible. By the way, this is why, especially in this service, that I wait until after like the second song, because y'all are always late. And I want as many of you to see that baptism as possible. And I, I know you do too. You want to celebrate with that. Now this last one, I, I'm going to do a sermon on this one day. Baptism is to be conducted by the church community. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that, uh, I, I'm not talking necessarily about the person that puts the person under the water. But there's, since, since baptism is, is an initiatory rite into the covenant community, it's appropriate that the covenant community be the ones that oversee and take part in and that baptism happens around. And uh, so 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For while by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Baptism is something that we do as a community and as a church community. So here's a simple way, and you probably heard me say this before, that I like to explain baptism. If you go to college, you read a lot of papers, and you write a lot of papers, and after four years of reading and writing all those papers, you get one paper and you frame it and put it on your wall. And what does that paper do? That paper symbolizes, it symbolizes the education that you got. It symbolizes all the work that was done to earn that degree. That is like baptism it is a symbol of something, except it does not symbolize work that you have performed. It symbolizes work that Christ has performed on your behalf. He has done it for you, and he gives to you salvation, and it pictures that. And so we have a baptism today. We have Diggory right? Diggory, you ready? We're going to show, uh, y'all come on down in the water, and we're going to show your video. I'm the son of Dwayne and Teresa. I've always grown up in churches, and I've known the Bible answers ever since I was young. And I've heard the gospel just all my life through my parents and through my teachers. 
my life before Christ was filled with disobedience, impurity, and lying. And then I've, I've come to faith in Christ just through my life, and I've really felt it grow through Stephen Street's youth ministry and through events like Camp Cherokee. My life is different now through my search for purity and in my consistent Bible reading. And I want to be baptized today to show my commitment to God and to my church. Jesus lived, died, was raised again, and will one day come back? Yes. Do you repent of your sins and believe in the death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. And wherever Jesus tells you to go, will you go? Whatever he tells you to do, will you do it? Yes. Diggory, in accordance with your confession, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in death and rise in life. stand together and sing this morning continue our worship worshiping our good God in whom we place our faith and our trust let's Undeserved, for the battle has been won. 
Christian, my steadfast hope that won't be shaken. My soul will wait, my soul will wait for you. You're my comfort when I feel forsaken, my refuge and my sure foundation. My soul will wait, my soul will wait for you.
say amen this morning. Amen. Amen. Maybe two, uh, two short sermonettes is better for those of you who have short attention spans. Uh, maybe we might try this more often. Who knows? Uh, so I want to talk to you about the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Lord's Supper, man, this is just one of my favorite topics. And I don't feel like usually I get a sufficient amount of time to talk about it. And uh, really looking back, I kind of wish that I would have just done one full-length sermon on the Lord's Supper uh, and on baptism. I didn't quite have enough Sundays uh, to kind of stack everything in before we really start getting ramped up for Christmas. Uh, but I want to spend just about you know, 10 or 15 minutes just talking to you about the Lord's Supper. And then, of course, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, together. Uh, the Lord's Supper, just like baptism, is not a sacrament. Uh, this does nothing to make you spiritual. Uh, this does nothing to dispense saving grace to you. Uh, this is a symbol of something. However, uh, it's, it's, it's more than just a symbol. This, this is an act of worship. Uh, this is a repetitive act of worship that we take part in. Baptism is something that you only do one time. Now, as a church, we do it a lot. We, we like to you know, see people baptized a lot. But as an individual, you only get baptized one time. The Lord's Supper is different. Uh, baptism pictures uh, the, the salvation, the death, burial, or resurrection of Christ, uh, and it does it one time for you as an initiation into the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper is something that you do in an ongoing fashion. A lot of traditions do the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Uh, how many of you uh, have been a part of a church in the past that did the Lord's Supper every single Sunday? Uh, that's not a bad idea. I wouldn't object to that. As Baptists, typically we do it every... <laughs> I grew up, I would do it every quarter. Um, um, we try to do it a little more often than that. Hopefully, we, we, well, I really like to do it more often than just once a quarter. We try to squeeze it in about, uh, about once a month. But if we did it more often, uh, that, would be, uh, that, that would be fine too. Uh, the Lord's Supper. Here's the definition of the Lord's Supper. It's not a sacrament. It's a symbolic act. A symbolic act. And we get to do, it, we get to do this often. It's a symbolic act. Three things. It remembers Jesus' death, it celebrates the new covenant, and it anticipates eternity with Christ. I'm going to go a little bit more in depth in those in just a moment. But it's a memorial. We, we, we memorialize things all the time. Every time you have a birthday and you have birthday cake, that birthday cake celebrates something. It's, it, it memorializes, it celebrates something, the day of your birth. Uh, every, time, every time you have a wedding anniversary and, and do something together, you celebrate every year. You memorialize something uh, that, uh, that's happened in the past. If you've ever been to D.C., if you've gone to a war memorial, if you've gone to Ground Zero and, and seen the memorial that's there. Um, Baptist, excuse me, uh, Lord's Supper memorializes something sacred, and it is itself sacred for us. And even more than that, it is worship. It's worship as we participate in it together. Uh, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about how Jesus ordained the Lord's Supper for us. Uh, two passages for you. The first one is in Matthew chapter 26, uh, verse 26 and following says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now here's what the Apostle Paul says about the Lord's Supper. And you can, you can really see these, these three things in the definition that I gave for you. Remembering the death of Christ, um, of the blood of the covenant, and then anticipating Christ's return. You can see them here where he says, uh, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. And he goes on to talk about how we do this in remembrance of Christ and Christ saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. And then Christ saying that as long as, as long as we do this together, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now think about this. In one act of worship, we symbolize and memorialize and celebrate Everything that is written in all of the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. In one act of worship, we symbolize the total plan of God that's laid out in all of Scripture and that flows through all of human history. And this is the thing that I think sometimes we miss about the Lord's Supper. First, let me talk to you about how the Lord's Supper remembers the death of Christ. This, I think, is a critical component of why we do the Lord's Supper because Christ's death was critical to our salvation. Christ's death was critical to our salvation. I mean, think about what you deserved for all of your sins. Think about what you deserved and all of the things that you have done, all the sins that you have done. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve that, but Jesus took our place. And the bread and the juice, symbolically, the body and the blood of Christ, broken and spilled out in his death on the cross, symbolically, through bread and juice, we remember the cross where all of our sins were laid upon Christ and his broken body and his spilled blood, uh, well, he took our place. And so we remember that. And second, this is a symbol of the new covenant, a new covenant of Christ's spilled blood. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, there was a blood sacrifice that was required during worship. And uh, you've heard me explain this before, but basically what the worshiper would do is they would bring a lamb without blemish, they would lay it upon the altar, they would put their hand on the head of the animal to signify a transference of their guilt for their sins to that animal, and then they would kill that animal and spill its blood. It was a substitute death that uh, where their sins were put upon that animal as in sacrifice in worship to God. And this began powerfully in Exodus in the Passover for the, when the very first lamb, Passover lambs, uh, were, were sacrificed and they were killed and the blood was put on the doorpost. Well, in the New Covenant, there's only one sacrifice. In the New Covenant, there's only one perfect Passover lamb without blemish that is sacrificed. And the guilt of all of us 
was laid upon that particular Passover lamb. Jesus was our per- the perfect lamb of God. All of our sin was transferred over to him, and he was the death payment that we deserved. So we no longer offer blood. Jesus' blood was offered for us. And we celebrate this in the Lord's Supper through the juice. We, we celebrate this in thankfulness. So we no longer celebrate a Passover. We celebrate a Passover lamb and the perfect communion that we can have with God as a result. And then number three, um, it anticipates the return of Christ and our eternal union that we're going to have with him. The Lord's Supper is an act of preaching through symbolism. It's an act where we say there's something in the past significant that happened, the cross, and there's something even more significant for us that's going to happen in the future, Jesus' return. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming both of those. We're looking back and we're remembering the cross. And we're looking forward and we're anticipating the perfect communion that we're going to have with Christ and with each other in heaven. And this lays the foundation for where our focus should be in the Lord's Supper. And so I've tried to break this down for you, where our focus is supposed to be. First, we're supposed to look back, not just at the cross, but where the cross became effectual for us. We're supposed to remember and think about the day that we were saved. Not just that day that Jesus died on a cross. And there was a specific day, a specific moment in time that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we're to think about that there in the Lord's Supper. But we also want to think about the day and the time for us that it was made real and that it was made effectual for us. We want to remember our salvation. And then also, uh, we look forward. We look forward to whenever Jesus returns and we see our salvation completed. And then lastly, our focus during the Lord's Supper is to be on our self-examination, on our sanctification, where we look within. So we look in the past, we look in the future, we look whenever we were justified, we look to whenever we're going to be glorified, but then we also look in the present We look in the here and now to our sanctification and this this battle that we're in. Y'all, we're in a war. We're in a war. Our salvation has not yet been made complete. We are still struggling with sin. One day we're going to be glorified and we're going to be perfect. But right now we struggle and we wrestle with things in our own life. And and the Bible calls us during the Lord's Supper to examine ourselves, to do some self-examination, and to ask, where are the things in my life that I'm personally battling with? Where are those sins that that I need to repent of? And this is what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through verse 32. He said, hey, don't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself. Discern uh, the body and the blood of Christ. Judge yourselves. So yes, we're to remember Christ. Yes, we're supposed to anticipate our full salvation in the future. But we're also to look within And think about where we are now and how we're struggling right now. And we're supposed to repent. We're supposed to, I know we don't like to think about those things. We don't like to think about our flaws. 
we don't like to walk around and, and, uh, and, 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 and think about how, you know, we have all these things in our life that we need to get rid of, but that's what the Lord's Supper really calls us to do, calls us to judge ourselves and to repent of those. And usually what we do around the Lord's Supper is we allow opportunity for prayer. We allow it to give you an opportunity of self-reflection to think about what Jesus did for you in the past to think about what Jesus is going to do for you in the future, but also to look within and say, God, where do I fall short? What is it that I need to repent of today? And the Bible warns us that if we don't do that, then we could partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And listen, you don't have to partake of the Lord's Supper today. If you're in a spot in your life where you are in rebellion to God, and you're under the Lord's discipline, and you're refusing the Lord, and you're not doing something that the Lord is telling you to do, or maybe, maybe God's telling you to stop doing something, you're like, no, I want to cling to that sin. Or God's telling you to, to do something for Him, and you're saying, no, I don't want to do that. And there's some type of, of belligerent disobedience in your heart, in your life. I would suggest to you not to partake of the Lord's Supper. But what I would really suggest to you today is that you would get that right before him. And that you would just confess to him and say, God, I'm so sorry. I'm struggling with this. I know that I'm going to be struggling with this. Help me. Give me your grace so that I might overcome it. So what I'm going to ask for us to do right now, I'm going to ask for our deacons who are going to be helping us and others that are going to be helping us to go ahead and make their way down. And then I'm going to ask you to bow your head. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to go to the Lord in prayer. And I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Would you, do, would you do some self-examination right now? The first thing that I want you to examine is I want you to think about and I want you to pray about your salvation. Can you look back and remember? Not just remember 2,000 years ago what Jesus did on the cross, but can you look back and remember two months ago, two years ago, 20 years ago, however long ago, to a day whenever you got saved. Can you remember when the death of Christ was made real to you? When that